The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. The Guardian. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. We've endorsed all of the proposals made by my honourable friend, the member for South West Wiltshire, in his report on improving mental health care. In particular, a structured mental health component within existing medical examinations performed while serving, an uplift in the number of mental health professionals conducting veterans' outreach work from mental health trusts, trial of an online early intervention system for serving personnel and veterans, and the means to allow the newly formed Veterans Information Service to contact The idea that not chief coroner is going to help uh, bereaved families get the answers to which is, I've got to say I don't accept, and I, I can't accept why this government has suddenly changed its position the Royal British Legion has described this as a betrayal of the bereaved uh, armed forces families and a threat to the military uh, covenant. And again, the reason the government is giving uh, for this change is deficit reduction. Shadow Defence Minister Kevin Jones and Defence Minister Nick Harvey during this week's armed forces debate. And with the nation's thoughts focused on those who served and have lost their lives in combat... This week's Focus podcast examines whether we do enough for our war veterans. This government was elected um, with big promises to our service personnel and their families and to defence, and they seem to renege on many of them. They promised to introduce a military government, uh, reneged on that, and only after a brilliant campaign by the Royal British Legion and Labour Party in Parliament did they end up doing the right thing for the wrong reason. This is Jim Murphy, the Shadow Secretary of State for Defence. He thinks the coalition government needs to raise its game. They enshrined the covenant in law, but they did it for the wrong reason because they knew they would lose the vote. And now they're going uh, to renege on their commitment to have a chief coroner's office, which would give peace of mind and the opportunity for families to know in detail what happens to the loved ones who lose their life in Afghanistan or elsewhere. They're also cutting forces welfare in a way that no one would have believed any government would have done, but certainly traditionally in the past, no Conservative government would ever have thought of doing. So I think the decisions they've made there on pensions for our forces are really pretty heartless and will cost hundreds of thousands of pounds over the lifetime of a young soldier seriously injured in Afghanistan, so they should think again. We all know there's a need for some cuts, but why don't they just freeze the pensions for the time of deficit reduction. The problem here is they're cutting the pensions forever and they will affect people regardless when they served in the military, including someone who jumped out of a landing craft in DD in 1944. That just isn't fair. A lot of people are obviously deserving, but do you think that the, those services, the people who go and they, 
they fight and some of them pay the ultimate uh, sacrifice. Do you think that they and their families should be a special case? There are very few people in our country who, as a matter of course, put, are separated from their own families and at any moment could be injured very badly or killed. So it's, it is unique. They are unique and they should be treated in a different way. And even at this late stage, they should think of making an exemption for our armed forces and freeze their pensions. For how long do you think there should be a support system, particularly for those people who leave the services? Um, is that something the state should organise or should it be the, the responsibility of charities, as is often the case now? There are brilliant charities all over the country helping our forces adjust to life um, outside the Army, the Navy or the Air Force. And that's part, that's part of uh, the way in which things are organised. That's sensible. Many of the forces have a real affection for those charities and people enjoy um, giving 50 pence or 50 pounds to those charities. So that is an important part of the welfare provision, but it can't be the only part. And government has a big responsibility to work in partnership with the charities. And when the charities can either logistically or financially afford some of the support, then it's essential. So the National Health Service, the Welfare System, Job Centre Plus, mental health services, local councils, housing departments and everyone else plays their bit to make sure that no one is disadvantaged as a consequence of having served our country. The Soldiers, Sailors, Airmen and Families Association, or SAFA, are a support service for veterans and service personnel. And with government funding, it runs a helpline for vets experiencing problems adjusting to normal life. But that funding has been cut. The line remains active, but only just. Athol Hendry is SAFA's Director of Communications. It, it means that uh, we will have to work very hard to raise the money, but I think uh, for us uh, it's a service that has been provided for armed forces, personnel, their families, and indeed for veterans for the last 14 years. It has proved uh, a very successful and, more importantly, a very useful uh, facility for those people so that they can call up at any time uh, of the day and, and get some uh, get some help and support at the end of the phone or indeed the end of an email. And we felt uh, it's just too important a service to let go, even with the cuts in government funding. Just how uh, many people were using it? Uh, we were taking about uh, six to 7,000 uh, calls every year, um, give or take. And whilst that in itself may not sound like a huge number, um, that's six or 7,000 people uh, who are ringing because they need and they want some support. And obviously the, the issues they raise with you don't just affect them, they affect their families as well. So it's a lot of people being impacted by the work of the helpline, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think that's a, a more general point um, with the forces community, that uh, although uh, the, the number of people who, who serve in the armed forces may be, may be going down uh, slightly and there are, there are further cuts to come, it's a much, much bigger community than that. It's not just the immediate dependents, but it's the wider family as well. Now, of course, you provide a lot of support. Tell me about the sort of things people raise with you on that helpline. Well, I think there is a whole, uh, there is a whole um, scope of, of, of subjects and of topics and of issues that people come to us with, some of which are very complex. And I think that, again, reflects some of the wider 
uh, context in which uh, servicemen and women are operating now, we find not just through the forces line service, but also through our wider welfare support to the armed forces and the veterans community that people often present now with far more complex, far more multi-dimensional issues. It's often not just one thing, it's a series of things which woven together create challenges for, for, for the men and women in the forces and indeed for the veterans community uh, when people leave the armed forces. Give us a few examples. Uh, there may be uh, welfare issues around uh, relationships, around dependency issues, around money, um, emotional, practical, financial issues, um, and pretty much you know, the whole spectrum, as I said. Some of them are quite straightforward, if you like, or one-dimensional, often the emotional, the welfare, the, the, the financial as well, particularly in the current economic climate, are areas of real concern. Um, both to people who are serving and people who have left the forces. Uh, obviously, you do what you can, but uh, across the board, do you feel that we as a nation do as much as we, we should for our service people and people who leave the services? Of course, there's that dreadful story that um, uh, people have been talking about this week about the, an army veteran, uh, Mark Mullins and his wife, who uh, were found, uh, who killed themselves, and it uh, emerged that they were struggling to live on just £57.50 a week. Sure. Do we do enough? Um, we could always do more. Of course we could. And I mean, we in the, the widest context of, of society. Um, but I think what we we recognize is uh, life is challenging, not just uh, for veterans, um, but, but for a, yeah, a much wider uh, range of people. I think what we feel is really important is that no veteran, nobody who has served in the armed forces must suffer any disadvantage. We recognize that um, the public purse is very tight. We recognize that we can always do more, but I think that, that, that's a far more far-reaching issue. But I think what is really important, and I sense is not always working, and you've just given a very, uh, you know, very current and topical and very tragic example, is that people who have served in the armed forces must certainly, as a very minimum baseline, not suffer any disadvantage when they go out uh, into you know, the wider civilian world, and that involves health care, particularly around mental health issues, but it also involves education, invo involves housing uh, and benefits as well. And, and that example that you've just given uh, suggests that it's not working as well as it should do. Of course, there are many things that may lead serving and retired service personnel to cry for help. Post-traumatic stress disorder is one of them. But what kind of help do they get? A survey commissioned by the army charity Combat Stress found that around half of our GPs are unaware of guidelines on diagnosing and treating PTSD. How can this lack of clinical understanding be improved? Post-traumatic stress disorder is a psychological condition and therefore a diagnosis can only be made properly by a psychiatrist. Um, and of course GPs being general practitioners aren't necessarily qualified to make such a diagnosis. This is Steve Pettit, the Combat Stress Regional Welfare Officer for Anglia. Recognition um, depends on how people present, but it's a fairly specialist uh, condition that, unless a GP has been made aware of what to look for, might not necessarily pick it up. And is that a big problem? How many people, I'm sure you won't know exactly, but do a large proportion um, of people present with what we think is post-traumatic stress disorder? Of the clients that we see, um, I suppose about 50% may have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. 50%, so that's, um, if, if that's being missed, that's pretty serious. Yeah, but it's not easy. And, of course, it doesn't necessarily show itself until maybe you know, years after, necessarily. Mm. The figures obviously are worrying, given that we know what they are. How do we go about addressing this? 
Well, well, the first thing we need to do, obviously, is be aware of who might be suffering or what their circumstances are. And I would say that we at Combat Stress have community outreach teams and we have specialist psychiatric nurses who provide a support along the lines of psychoeducation or cognitive behaviour therapy, um, recognised standard practices and procedures that go a long way to helping veterans understand more than anything, understand and then deal with what their issues are. The client's got to realise when he is getting into a, a position where things might kick off or he's angry, that it's not acceptable to go around and take your anger, your anger and frustration out, say, in a violent way on either your wife, partner or the next door neighbour or anybody who happens to be going past. Steve Pettit from Combat Stress. Of course, the transition from military life to civilian life is never easy, even for those who are healthy and able-bodied when they leave. One of the many challenges they face is finding work, and that can be especially daunting for those who spent their entire adult lives in the services. Luckily for them, it's increasingly accepted that skills learned in the army are transferable to other areas. Uh, I joined the army in 1999 when I was 16 years old, so when I was a young young kid, the same age as what we teach now. Um, Andrea Bartlett Remi, teaches life skills at the Central Foundation Boys Secondary School in Tower Hamlets, on the edge the of the City of London. Uh, I've been overseas, like Afghanistan, um, and unfortunately I found out I had an eye condition uh, which is deteriorating, and unfortunately that, that's obviously the... I had to be medically discharged from the army in April of this year, so 12 years. How much of a blow was that to you? Um, it was a huge blow because I kind of got to a point after 12 years you kind of think that you can't do anything else and it's very difficult. Um, so it's... I was thinking I can't actually do my medical work um, because cause it's deteriorating my eyes. I work in a pharmacy. I was worried it was going to affect the work. So I knew I had to find a job in civilian life that had nothing to do with that. And I was really worried. I kind of felt at a loss. My confidence had dropped considerably until I found that the internship, while I was still serving my last six months, I found the internship for the skill force. And then I started uh, working in this school here. What's it like knowing that you have to come out of the army, come back into civilian life? It must, it must be quite scary. And, and I think many people will feel that you won't automatically get a good reception and that you won't automatically get all the help you need. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's very daunting because you, you feel that you, you feel that that's all you can do is uh, be a soldier. Um, it's very different to civilian life, so it's trying to adapt as well, the way, the way civilian life works. And I suppose in the army, it's a big family even in the RAF and the Navy, they're all the same. You work, you work together, you're overseas together, and, and obviously being in civilian life, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a daunting concept. And, and for a while, I did actually feel lost, and um, I actually felt that my confidence levels, I, I felt quite hard to talk to people. I mean, until I met Skillforce, and I found with the, the children, they ask you questions, they, they're very interested in the military, and it's not all negative I thought there was going to be a lot of negativity around the, the children especially thinking that you'll kill people and um, but it's not they're actually genuinely interested in and they all they tend to know quite a bit about um, Afghanistan and all the issues that are going on um, and they actually listen to you and that they, they they do feel they say that they respect you they wouldn't want to do it themselves a lot the boys that we teach um, but they respect us for doing it yeah. what do you think you learn being in the military 
that becomes useful when you come out of the military and come back into civilian life? Um, I think being professional, um, it, it kind of when I was 16 and I first joined, I remember my mum saying I came from basic training and she said, you're a woman, you went away as a girl and you came back as a woman, your head, she says you were very grown up. Um, it gives you, you're very good at teamwork, working with others, no matter from what background anyone is. You just take, you take each person for who they are uh, and you just work with them really, really well. Um, they always teach you integrity, honesty, um, comradeship. So when you're in Afghanistan, you've got to rely on everyone. Like um, It's a big family, everyone gets on um, and does the job at hand. So um, always five minutes before as well, you have to, so we're very professional in that way. Yeah. That's Andrea Bartlett. And of course we know that the government's particularly keen on the idea of former service personnel working in schools, and particularly the notion that they might retrain as teachers. One free school in Manchester may be exclusively staffed by former members of the armed services. With our prior military history, one would have thought we would be much better at handling the transition from military to civilian life. But Richard Norton-Taylor, the Guardian's security editor, told me we're still learning. Well, we certainly care for them now, it seems, and much more than we have done in the past. A few years ago, when the first uh, injured and the dead uh, British soldiers came back from Iraq and then subsequently, of course, from Afghanistan, uh, the heads of uh, the army, in particular, were saying that we don't, why don't we, why don't we in Britain recognize uh, sort of vets and uh, returning soldiers, like the Americans? And not only do we, should we sort of celebrate them when they come home from uh, immediately from uh, from missions and tours of duty in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, but we should also look after them uh, medically, from the medical point of view, both obviously if they got you know injured and had their yeah. legs amputated, yeah. well, but also mental health, which the British have been very slow to appreciate. The British military uh, have been very slow to recognize the uh, effects of uh, warfare on the mind. A lot of it doesn't come... It doesn't show itself to much, much later. Do the Americans generally do this better than us? The Americans have been better for a much, uh, much longer time. You can say it may not be surprising, maybe especially after Vietnam War, but even before that, they had, a, after the Second World War, a, uh, well, for a very long time, they've had a Department of Veterinary Affairs. Only fairly recently have the British Ministry of, uh, of Defence put up uh, a minister, who, part of whose job is responsible for veterinary affairs. He's not even got the title, not even in, in that one Ministry of Defence got a title of uh, Ministry of Veterinary Affairs. It's so just one of his responsibilities. Is part of his responsibility, which he shares with other responsibilities. In America, it'll be a whole big government department, like a, as though it's a Whitehall department for vets. Um, OK, they've got more soldiers by definition, but it's, uh, the, in the British, you know, the British historically... Uh, uh, wars and the, and the warrior nation, as, 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 as the army keeps on saying, and, and how much politicians have actually relied on the, and, and used the, uh, the military and, uh, for their own political, um, their political statements. I and mean, one of the problems, I think, is that for the first time you've had, um, under Blair government, I should probably the Blair Labour government, you have had not a single um, minister, a cabinet minister, who's had any experience at all of the military. I mean, national service, post-national service, TA and so on. One could get the idea that we're very keen to have the symbols 
um, and, and to we worry yeah. about whether or not the England football team yeah. have poppies on their shirts. Yeah. We make a fuss about newsreaders who won't wear their poppies. But when it actually comes to the hard work mm. and, and the prolonged work, looking after people who left the yeah. services maybe five years ago who then yeah. have a problem, exactly. that we're just not very good at that. Well, when it comes to the hard level, if you like, and, and practicalities, Hadley Court uh, looks after um, soldiers and, and helps to train them when they're uh, amputees prosthetic limbs and so on, Indeed, and yeah. um, in Headley Court, where they want to extend, the MOD wanted to ex- uh, enlarge it, and also make room for some of the relations, loved ones, close relations of the, of, of the vets who'd been injured. The local council objected to this. We can't have all these uh, soldiers and their families around the place. It would be bad for the... Uh, environment or the uh, well, just on the, on the, the class how it would look for the for the surrounding uh, area yeah subsequently of course they they, they gave in but that's you know d- 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 you have a very good point i mean it, you know at one hand the symbols is all and i didn't think about it too much but actually when it comes to practicalities and um we're not v- very good at the or the administrative defense is not very good and nor other civil whitehall departments at, at following the vets when they've left uh, the army because of injury and looking after them throughout their life. Um, and uh, to be fair to the, the end of the Labour government, and now this government is trying to do a bit more, um, bringing in the Department of Health, for example, and, and trying to ensure that uh, because they're living in different barracks around the country, they're not put at the bottom of doctors' waiting lists and so on, and GPs' lists, um, to try and give them a kind of equal status. Uh, to recognise that they have actually been fighting for the country and so on. You can say they're fighting for the country. These brave soldiers, which ministers say and prime ministers say every week, you know, and they honour the dead, and they talk about the bravery of, and the selfishness of, of British soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is fine, but they haven't done much about it. And as you suggest, it's, a lot of it is symbolic. But I'm not, still not sure why this time, rather than last year or the year before or the year before that, the poppy um, has become such a controversial issue. Maybe it is because of of an acknowledgement that maybe we haven't done enough, or a collective consciousness we haven't done enough in the past. So the annual week of remembrance will soon be over. The veterans will have marched, the wreaths will have been laid. It's the sort of pageantry we do so well. The challenge is what we do in the other 51 weeks of the year. And that's it from us this week. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer of this Focus podcast was Peter Sale. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.